please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 as we continue to make our way through this wonderful little epistle here. Just over halfway now. If you've been with us this whole time, you remember that Paul talked about the qualifications of an elder and a deacon in chapter 3. In the beginning of chapter 4, he talked about really the dangers of false teaching and how some will depart from the faith. Now he begins to talk about what a pastor is supposed to do. So if you want to think of it in this term, it might be helpful. If you look at chapter 3, those are the character qualifications of the leaders in the church, the elders and the deacons. In this chapter, really from verse 6 to the end, we have kind of the job description of a pastor, of a servant of God. So this kind of pushes what Paul already said a little further. Hopefully it will be a blessing. We are only going to cover a small portion of that tonight, verses 6 through 10. So hopefully you're there, 1 Timothy chapter 4. Verses 6 through 10. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your ways are blameless, and all your words are righteous and true. So, Lord, we thank you for the privilege of receiving your word once again this evening. Thank you for the privilege of drawing near to you in corporate worship. Father, we recognize that's only possible because of the finished work of Christ and his continued mediation for us. So, Lord, in Christ's name, we ask that you would deal bountifully with your servants tonight, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes, Lord, as we study, that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, and guard us, Lord, from pride and distraction, so that we don't wander from your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm not sure if you're aware, but there has been a considerable amount of talk lately about pastoral burnout. It's really taken place over the last few months. It's always a continued conversation, but it seems really prevalent in the last few months. And I think it really started with a pastor from Illinois that said he was leaving pastoral ministry altogether, and he wrote an article to basically explain why after he told his church. And just need to tell you up front, if you haven't read the article and you go read it, the whole thing is a mess in a lot of ways. There's whining and complaining, self-pity. He claims to be traumatized by his church, so I don't recommend it as truth, okay? I'm just using it as an illustration here. But perhaps one of the saddest things for me as I read it is he said that he's quitting the ministry because of unrealistic expectations on all pastors, not just him, on all pastors today. And I'm I'm summarizing, but essentially here's what he said. Today, 
Pastors are expected to be excellent public speakers, CEOs that draw people in the doors and then make sure they stay in their seats. They're supposed to be proficient fundraisers, professional counselors, a human resource director, a master of ceremonies that's entertaining, and a pillar of virtue in the church, which includes, by the way, having essentially a perfect family. Now, I, I said this up front, but I'd say it again. I, I don't know this pastor. I don't know his church. I don't know his character. I don't know whether he should have been in pastoral ministry in the first place. But what shocked me as I read this is he kept on saying, these standards are ridiculous. They're unrealistic. They're just unfair. But he never once said, are these standards even biblical? Not once. In other words, he kept saying, my, my church wants me to be a CEO. They want me to be this, this life coach, this religious guru or counselor that just dishes out advice whenever they want. But he never once asked, what does God want from me? Or what does God want from his pastors, his servants to begin with? And you see, brothers and sisters, that's all that matters at the end of the day, isn't it? It's not about what we want for the church or what we think the pastor should be. It's about what God calls a pastor to, what he calls them to do. And look, that shouldn't matter just to pastors. That needs to matter to everyone in the church because you are called to follow us as pastors as we follow Christ. And so if we are all committed to these unbiblical standards that aren't in God's word, then this is the kind of mess that we get. We'll turn the church into a show, a club, a self-help clinic, or something way worse. So tonight, we're going to answer that essential question that I wish this pastor would have asked, is what does a good servant, a faithful minister of Christ Jesus actually look like? What are those qualifications? What are the expectations that God has on his pastors and servants? And again, like I said, you are called to follow us as we follow Christ. So it's a very real way when we answer this for pastors, we're also talking about things that we should exhibit all throughout the church. But exemplary, we should see that in the pastors, especially. So how does Paul answer that question? He says, really, there's three things. Faithful minister teaches God's word, verse 6. He trains in godliness, verses 7 through 9. And he trusts in God as his own Savior and then the Savior of all who believe. So he teaches, trains, and trusts. Alliteration's not one of those, you'll notice, but it does help as we go through these things. So let's walk through the first characteristic. They teach God's word in verse 6. So look at verse 6 with me again. If you put these things before the brothers, the brothers meaning the brothers and sisters in Christ, the church there, you, Timothy, so he's talking to the pastor, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So he's saying, Timothy, make sure you put this before the church. But what's this? What things is he talking about? Well, he could, of course, be talking about everything in the letter he's already talked about. I think, though, he's talking specifically about the verses right before it, the five verses that we talked about last week. And we don't have to read those again. Let me just summarize what Jason talked about last week. In the first five verses of chapter 4, in the first three especially, Paul warned Timothy about the dangers of false teaching. And how it will lead some away. So he kind of rebuked those false teachers. But then he also taught about the goodness of creation. And so what Paul did in those first five verses 
is he taught sound doctrine and he refuted those who contradict. And I hope you recognize those words. Those words are from Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Paul is exhibiting, he's, he's given an example to Timothy saying, this is the teaching you're called to. This is what you're supposed to do. Call out false doctrine and teach sound doctrine. It's so important for us to get this. Because a pastor doesn't just tell you what to believe. Tell you how to respond. Tell you how to act. The pastor is also supposed to point out what's false. Supposed to point out false teaching and even false teachers. To show you what not to believe. That's a, an important role of a pastor that we sometimes forget or neglect. And even what not to teach your kids. What to run from. I think some people think, well, the pastor is just kind of this motivational speaker. Right? Just makes me feel good. And you can think, well... I'm glad our church doesn't struggle with that. And in some cases, I think you're absolutely right. But check yourself in a lot of ways. How do you take rebuke from your pastor? How do you take correction from your pastor? Are you fine when he's pointing out the truth? And do you shrink back when he calls out or corrects you? Because that's part of his role as well. So a pastor is not primarily a motivational speaker. In a lot of ways, a pastor is more like an inspector or an auditor. They're the ones going around to all these truth claims that come at us, and they take the word of God, which is the measure of truth, and they're holding up those truth claims to the word of God, saying this is where it lines up. This is what you should avoid. This is the standard, and we're not meeting it. That's what a faithful servant is supposed to do. Now, you'll know if you've been around the church a long time, or if you've ever, you know, gone on Facebook, <laughs> calling out false doctrine is not popular. Right? If you are a faithful preacher of the word and you're calling out false doctrine, especially from the pulpit, you will be called a bigot, you'll be called unloving, you'll be called ungracious, even you'll be called unchristlike. I don't know if you've ever been told this, but I've had people say, well, aren't Christians supposed to be kind of known for what they're for and not what they're against? You ever heard that one? I've heard that a lot in my life. Known for what they're for, not what they're against. And I get why people would want to say that. I do. I think there's a very real sense where we don't want to be known only for our fights, what we're against. But I always say, why can't we be known for both? Why can't we be known for what we're for and what we're against? And wasn't that what Christ was known for? In so many ways, he's the lion and the lamb. He's the bold prophet that called out the Pharisees and false teachers with no problem at all, but he's also the patient and kind and loving servant of God. And didn't he teach his shepherds to do the exact same thing? To rebuke false doctrine and also to feed the sheep and fend off the wolves. I like the way John MacArthur says this, and this is something that only John MacArthur would say, so you'll recognize it right away. He says, a pastor must be committed to protecting the flock, not petting the sheep, not pandering to them. We need to be faithful in protecting the flock, not just trying to speak the truth in general and not calling out lies. So a good servant teaches God's word by speaking the truth and rebuking those lies. But first, before a good servant can even do that, they have to first be nourished by the word. In other words, a, a pastor cannot feed the sheep unless he is first fed on the word. And that's where Paul goes next in verse 6. Look at the middle of verse 6. You will be a good 
servant of Christ Jesus. How? By being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, the word trained is a little misleading. It sounds like exercise, and the next word for trained actually doesn't mean exercise. But this word trained has to do more with food has to do with the idea of nourishment. It's, it's like the picture of feeding a child so that they grow up in the faith. Or really, just grow up and they're healthy. That's the idea here. And so this is a continuous, a constant action that Paul is commanding the pastors to do. The New American Standard really nails it in the translation. It says, instead of being trained in the words, it says, constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which you have followed. That's what Paul's commanding. Timothy, you need to be nourished by the word. You need to be taught before you can teach. You need to be encouraged and strengthened. Timothy, treat the word of God like your food. This will fuel your ministry. And without this, you'll never make it. And Christ was the one saying that to begin with. Even he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live on bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, honestly, I hope you know, for us as a pastor, the pastors here, this is, I feel like, one of the greatest blessings of the pastoral ministry. We get to study the word and feast on the word all week long. The hardest part at the end of the week is not that you get to the end of the week and you think, I don't have enough content. <laughs> I got to come up with jokes and, you know, funny stories. That's never the struggle. The hardest part every time is, what in the world do I cut? It's all so important. There's so much I can say, and I only have such a, a small amount of time. And so the pastor has this privilege of feeding on the word all week long. And as Jason often says, we are here to serve up the choicest cuts of meat for you. The part that will really encourage you and help you. And we've been feeding on the word and nourished by the word. That's essential part of the pastoral ministry. But it is a joy and a privilege as well. Now, how do we know, though, that it's actually happening? Because there are some pastors that can get distracted. And the nourishment on the word can feel like a distraction from dealing with all the other issues going on. So how do we know it's happening? Well, it will show up in the way they live, whether or not they obey or whether or not we obey. Because a good servant doesn't just feed on the word, they obey the word. And that's where Paul goes at the end of verse 6. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus being trained to remember, nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. And listen, that you have followed, that you have lived out yourself. Paul says your nourishment needs to lead to action. Feeding on the word has to show up in your life in obedience. It has to show up there. It's not like that old cliche that you've probably heard, you know, those who can't do teach. Heard that before? I always thought that was a weird thing. I, I hope that's not true in any occupation, right? You don't want that to be true, but it's the exact opposite true in pastoral ministry. Only those who can do should teach. I hope you get that. We think about this a lot. If Chad is not gathering regularly for corporate worship on Sunday morning and Sunday evening, he has no right to call you out on that. Because he's walking in obedience, that's what gives him the privilege to be able to call you out on that. If Jason's not walking in purity, he can't command you all to be pure. If I'm not evangelizing the lost, preaching the gospel, then I shouldn't be calling you to do the same thing. That's hypocrisy. 
That's a lot of what Paul is rebuking in this letter and what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for. We don't want it to be that. So a good servant of Christ Jesus needs to watch both, guard both his life and his doctrine. It's not just about being filled with a bunch of facts. The, the question at the end of the day is, are we being obedient to Jesus today? Are we like the blessed man in Psalm 1? You remember, who delights in God's word. He meditates on God's word day and night, but how does it show up in his life? He's walking not in the counsel of the wicked, nor standing in the way of sinners, nor sitting in the seat of scoffers. It shows up, his meditation, in the way he lives. Or think of David in Psalm 119, verse 11. I have stored up your word, Lord, in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. That's what a pastor, what a good servant of Christ Jesus is supposed to do. First, they teach God's word. Teach God's word by living it out and being nourished on it to begin with. And then it comes out in the teaching. Well, what's the second thing? The second thing is they train. They train in godliness. We see that really in the second phrase of verse 7. Look at verse 7 with me again. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. Now, this time, training actually does mean training. That word training there is like the word discipline. In fact, in the Greek, it's where we get our word for gymnasium. Training happens there, right? That probably brings up all kinds of memories for many of us growing up. Maybe good memories in sports, maybe weird smells or, or whatever it might be. But that picture, even in our minds, is the same idea here is that this is the picture of hard work. This is the picture of blood, sweat, and tears that we know it takes to succeed. Paul's giving us this difficult athletic imagery to say that's what it looks like to follow Christ. That's what it looks like to be a good servant, and especially for pastors. Now, we know this if you've ever been an athlete yourself. Maybe some of you grew up spending a lot of time in sports. Or you ever watch the Olympics and you see how much training goes into just getting them there. I mean, it's insanely hard work, isn't it? At least if you want to be competitive. You can just have fun with it. But if you want to be good, it takes a lot of work, a lot of time. Tremendous discipline constant training it's not something that you can just do in your spare time no it takes over in your life everything takes a back seat and rain or shine you're doing whatever it takes just to make the smallest little improvements and that's what Paul is saying that's what the Christian life that's what the life of a good servant looks like especially displayed in the life of a pastor and why is that well for one godliness does not come natural to us it doesn't because we're fallen, broken sinners. And yes, we're saved. God has redeemed us from the mess we were in, the sin we were in. He's given us the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean the battle just goes away. The battle is strong with the flesh, isn't it? If you can't relate to that, then read Romans 7. The thing I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. It's a battle. It's a struggle. So we have to be disciplined with our time. We can't just live for God repent when we feel like it only when somebody confronts us no if we did that you know we would never live for the lord we'd never be disciplined no it's a struggle it takes discipline repentance when you get off course it really takes reorienting your whole life around what god wants and not what we want in that moment 
And brothers and sisters, you know that inconsistent exercise, inconsistent discipline can create all kinds of messes, and it really does hinder you as an athlete, doesn't it? Same is true for godliness. If we don't train ourselves to be godly, we're opening ourselves up to all kinds of mess, and it will kill holiness. Or in the first part of the chapter, it can leave us exposed to these false teachings that could even lead us to walking away from the faith. So all Christians, but especially pastors, need to train in godliness. I hope you're hearing me. This is not a hobby. This is not a a side hustle. This is not something you do whenever your life becomes a mess, then I'll get my act together, and then I will be holy. Christians, we need to devote ourselves to godliness. Now, some may be hearing that and think, wow, gosh, that's so heavy-handed. It's legalistic. You kind of sound like godliness is just like getting in the gym and doing the reps and, you know, practice makes perfect, and that's all it really is. Please don't misunderstand me. It does take work. It does take discipline. But that doesn't mean it's not all grace. All grace. Because we don't produce the godliness by our effort. We don't. Because after God saves us, he saves us by giving us a heart of flesh and giving us the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit goes to work on us. To sanctify us and change us. The Holy Spirit does all that work. But how does the Holy Spirit do it? Well, he motivates the godliness. He convicts us of the truth. Shows us what's true in the word. Convicts us and even fuels our repentance. Fuels our effort all the way through. And he uses ordinary means to do it like time in the word time in prayer especially time in corporate worship that's really what brings godliness at the end of the day which should be no surprise what brings godliness time in the presence of god that's obvious right that's what makes us more like christ but this is all over scripture listen to philippians 2 this is paul again verse 12 work out your salvation with fear and trembling there's the train yourself to be godly But then he says, for it's God who works in you. How? Both to will, the want to, and to work, the doing. God does it all. Grace from start to finish. Colossians 1.29, Paul says, for this I toil. Talking about living out the faith, he says, struggling with all his energy. God's energy. That he powerfully works within me. I hope you can see. Even though we're calling you to discipline yourself, calling you to work, we're not saying it's all of you. It's not legalism. It's all of grace. In fact, it's our response to grace, and it's fueled by the Holy Spirit. So that at the end of time, when we are before the throne of Revelation, even when we get the crown of blessing, we throw it at the feet of our Lord. Because we know it was him from the beginning. And that's our hope, is that we train in godliness knowing that's where we're headed. Now, there are big hindrances for our training along the way, big distractions, and Paul lists two of them here in these verses. So the first distraction Paul mentions is more like foolish and godless things. We see that at the beginning of verse 7. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. What are those? Well, irreverent has the idea of, of godless, silly is foolish, now, that could take all kinds of forms. In Ephesus, it probably took the form of chapter 1 when Paul says endless genealogies, which promotes speculation rather than stewardship from God. It could take the form of false teaching like he confronted in this very chapter in verse 3, 
when the false teachers were forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. Those could be silly and irreverent myths. But what does it look like in our world? Well, it could be, again, all kinds of things. Maybe atheistic social claims, political claims like, can a man become a woman? You don't need the Bible to figure that out. Natural theology is clear. Biology, frankly, is clear enough. That's a silly, irreverent myth. And to struggle with that, spend endless amount of time with that, is what Paul's saying. Don't do that. Don't go after those things and spend your life on those things. It could be other false doctrines, charismatic theology, Bible code, or predicting when Jesus will come back. It could just be the endless debate around certain issues. We're going to figure out if it was seven-day creation or not. Those kinds of things. Now, Paul's not saying ignore that stuff. Right? Paul actually, what does he do? He calls them out in the letter. But did you notice how much detail he gave? Almost nothing. That's the point. Paul's saying it's not even worth my time to list them all out. Don't waste your time on this stuff. Don't be consumed by this. Sure, call it out when necessary. But don't forget to be godly. Don't forget what the main thing is, which is to worship God, which is the gospel which is becoming more like God. Don't let all those things distract you from godliness. That's the first distraction, this irreverent and silly myth. The second distraction is more of a good distraction in this sense. They're good things. They're not godless things, but they're just not eternal things. And that's what he says in verse 8. For while bodily training, physical training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Why? as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You notice Paul doesn't say physical training is worthless. Stop working out. Stop exercising. It's not what he's talking about. It has some value. But at the end of the day, what Paul is saying, it just, it doesn't last. It's not eternal. And you know this. We all know this. As much as we want to exercise and diet, and we can do those things, and you should do those things. At most, you add a day, a week, maybe some better years to your life than uncomfortable years. But at the end of the day, you're still going to die. It won't fix that problem. Paul's saying, look, these are temporal. They're not eternal. So spend your time on what lasts. Well, brothers and sisters, there are so many of these things in our world that we could get lost in so many good things that can become ultimate things, which is a big problem. Kids, this could be great things like even school and learning. Sports, which are a blast and they're fun, but they can consume you. Friendships, reputation, adults, we fall into this too, don't we? Jobs, careers, investments, and family, and just events, and protecting the family, focusing on the family. We can get caught up in all of these things. And they can be good and helpful at times, but again, they're not eternal. One day, they will all fade away. Godliness won't. So listen to Paul here. Paul's saying, spend your time on what lasts. Train to be godly. And if you won't listen to Paul, listen to Christ. You should listen to both. They're both the word of God. But Matthew 6, 33. Christ says, seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Christ says that is what you make your life about. All the other details are great. They'll be filled in. Focus on God. 
look to him. So what does a good servant, a good minister of Christ look like? They teach the word by living it out and feeding on the word. Secondly, they train. They train avoiding both good and bad distractions. And third, ultimately, they trust in God, who is their Savior and the Savior of all who believe. That's in verse 10. For to this end we toil and strive. In other words, Paul's saying, this is it. This is the fight we're talking about. This is why we do it. This is the foundation of all of it. Because we have our hope, our trust, set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. Now, please don't get thrown by that word, that language. Savior of all people. Does that mean every single person in the world will be saved? Not one will go to hell? That's not what he's talking about. And if you've been with us in 1 Timothy, you know Paul's been using this language already, hasn't he? In chapter 2, verse 1, in chapter 2, verse 4, when Paul talks about all people, he talks about regularly all types of people. Jew and Gentile, slave and free. Really, in this case, I think he's talking about all the nations. People from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's why he adds, especially of those who believe at the end of verse 10. Now, this is a terrible translation. It sounds like Paul is correcting himself. Oh, wait, I didn't mean to say all people, especially those who believe. It's not what he's doing here. He's actually restating it, clarifying it even more what he meant Philip Ryken says this, and I think it's a great translation. God is the Savior of all kinds of people. That is to say, he's the Savior of all who believe. That's what he's saying here. God is the Savior of all who believe. Brothers and sisters, that is the gospel. This is the most important characteristic of a good servant of Christ Jesus, is that our hope and our trust is not in us. At the end of the day, it's not in the work of our hands, in how big our church can get, in what we can produce within our own strength. It's in the living God, because he's the only one that saves. Not anything I do, or Chad, or Jason does. It's God who saves. And every pastor should look at this. Every Christian, frankly, should look at the standard and think, well, I can't do this. This good servant thing is just, the ship has sailed. It's done, because I don't delight in God's word like I know I should. I don't faithfully teach God's word when I should. I don't call out false doctrine and lies. I don't teach the truth when I should. I constantly get distracted by both good and bad things. I, at the end of the day, I realize I am not a good servant. That's what we should all come to, that conclusion there. And this is bringing that out. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that the living God sent his servant, Christ Jesus, who is the perfect servant. Because Christ never stopped delighting in the word. He always obeyed the word. He taught God's word faithfully, with great patience and with great boldness, didn't he? Speaking the truth in love, in kind ways, but also not afraid to call out lies and those who contradict. He trained himself his whole life for godliness fighting off those distractions so that he can honor the Lord and obey where we fail. And because he lived and died and rose again, he can save failed servants like us, sinners, rebels, enemies of God. And he can also save us and transform us into good servants. So the hope is not that, okay, Christ just gets us to the point where we start over. No, the hope is that Christ forgives us 
and the Holy Spirit dwells in us and empowers us to actually do these things. So yes, these are unrealistic expectations in and of our flesh. But in Christ, in Christ, this is what he's doing in us. And he's doing this, brothers and sisters, because we're reminding of ourselves the gospel. This is what we have to put before you. This is our only hope at the end of the day. It's not my faithfulness or Chad's faithfulness or even our unfaithfulness that makes this all fail. The hope is the gospel. I know many of you probably haven't been in a pastor's coffee in a long time, but one of the things that Chad almost always says in pastor's coffee at the end, he guarantees these are brand new people to the church and they're trying to figure out if this is the right church for them. But we often say, look, we will pretty much promise you that at one time we will greatly disappoint you probably in ways that you are really struggling with. We will do that. It's a promise we'll make, but we will promise never to stop pointing you to the one who will never disappoint you. That's the hope. That's the good servant of Christ Jesus. We are pointing to him, teaching about him, training in godliness because he saved us. Let's pray that God would help us to do that. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time and your word. Thank you for this wonderful picture of your servant your son, who did all things for us and also because of Christ is now working these things in us. Father, help us to look at these, these commands, these calls, and to repent where we fall short. I pray, the Lord, for this church, for all of the congregants in the church, that we would hold all the pastors, including myself, to these standards. We wouldn't perfectly fulfill these things, but we would repentantly and regularly live these out so that others can follow us as we follow Christ. Father, we pray at the end of the day that you would build your church. You would build your church as we continue to preach the gospel and you save those who believe. Pray this in Jesus' name.